You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Uh, I'm Steve. Uh, I'm one of the elders here and get the chance to, to speak from time to time. Uh, so today, oh, actually, is our intro to the Sermon on the Mount series, which uh, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm pretty excited for this. is I think this is going to be, um, I think, really well, as, as, it's always, as it always goes when we're kind of planning out, you know, months and months in advance of what the sermon series are. Uh, you know, this it's sort of God does his own thing in that of just like, aligning, um, you know, what his words are for us in the times that we need them. And so I feel like this is really timely and, and really good. And you might be, uh, I saw, you know, some faces in the crowd as, as we started reading uh, Matthew 7. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. So why, you know, why start at the end? Uh, so today's sermon is a bit more uh, context work. So we're actually going to talk about, um, you know, the context leading into the Sermon on the Mount and then actually the, the response going out of. So bit of unconventional uh, sermon in that way, but I think really good, all that, all that context is just so valuable. Um, so again, why is the Sermon on the Mount important? You know, why, why study it at all, really? Um, and I can tell you, just one of the things that I was really struck by, uh, actually a long time ago, but then I was reminded of it again, I heard a quote from a guy who is actually, is a bit of a critique of the American church, um, and his quote was, uh, Christians today, speaking particularly about American Christians. Christians today have made Jesus their Savior, but Paul their Lord. And that sort of struck me as just really um, heavy. And, you know, for me, it, it, it I sort of made me kind of change perspective a little bit of, like, asking myself, you know, my whole life I've been, um, and, and, you know, God bless the apostles. They, they gave us, you know, God's words, and they described them in such, in such beautiful theology. It's where we get a lot of theology from and a lot of that stuff. But, you know, what struck me is just like, have I been reading Jesus through the eyes of Paul my whole life, or have I been reading Paul through the eyes of Jesus? And just for me, that was really kind of a, a, a fundamental shift in, in looking at, at Scripture um, just in general. And so what's beautiful about the Sermon on the Mount, as we're stepping into it, is that these are Jesus's words. I mean, this is the, the longest continuous uh, a discourse of Jesus, the longest, the biggest section of red text in your Bible, if your Bible does that. Um, and so what's really beautiful about that is that, you know, these are, these are God's words uh, to us. It's, it's Jesus describing to us what his ministry is. And so it's just a really uh, beautiful thing in that way. Um, so with that, let me pray one more time, and then we'll actually get into, get into the actual context work here. So Lord, we just thank you for uh, this morning. Um, pray for just spring uh, being in the air and um, pollen f- starting to get out there and, and uh, messing with all of us, Lord. But we just pray that you give us clear minds uh, this morning. We just thank you for um, for your words to us and just um, pray that you be with us in this place. Lord. In your name, amen. So like I said, today's uh, it's, it's a lot of the context work around Sermon on the Mount. And so um, actually the way I was kind of looking at it was you know, when looking at a, at, a, at a bookshelf, Jesus's teachings as being all the books on that bookshelf, what we're going to do today is talk about the bookend on the left and the bookend on the right. Um, so, like I said, it's the, our normal way of just preaching straight through something uh, is a little bit uh, uh, different. But, um, but, yeah, with that, let's get into it. So setting the stage, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, like we talk about, is already 
the most comprehensive discourse that we have from, from Jesus from start to finish. Um, Matthew 5 to 7 is actually communicated to us by Matthew as if it's, as if it's a continuous, uninterrupted sermon. And, uh, you know, if you read uh, any, any articles or, or commentary or anything about it, there's some debate over, well, is this just how Matthew structured it? Or was this actually how the sermon was presented? Um, but what's undeniable is this, is that Matthew does this on purpose, that, you know, the author of, of the book does this on purpose. And it's really set up uh, throughout, as we'll look at here in, in a bit more detail. It's, look out, it's set up to be Jesus's first public pronouncement of what his ministry is all about. And so that's, again, why, why it's so important. So we're going to be in Matthew 3 uh, here in a minute, starting 3.1. Um, if you have a, if you want to grab a, a pew Bible or your, or your um, can you call these pew Bibles? The wooden, wooden two-by-four table Bibles. Uh, and, uh, and then, or if on your phone or whatever. And uh, we'll be there in a minute. Um, but to take a page out of Jesse's book, what we're going to start with is definitions. Yes, right. You can start the wave and, you know, we'll do, anyway. Um, so yeah, so the, the first thing we're going to look at is, is this idea of fulfillment. Uh, so what it is, and we can hear this a few times throughout, um, Matthew uses this word a lot throughout his gospel, uh, but Jesus uses this word <laughs> a lot of fulfill, and probably the most famous example of, of Jesus using this word is, you know, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so this idea of, of fulfillment uh, is actually the, the Greek word uh, plerou. There's actually probably an earlier slide for that. There you go. And so it's, you know, the, the definition is, is luckily quite clear for us. It's to make full. You know, and it also has this idea, if you look in the concordance, it has this idea of, of cramming a net full of something, which is, is you know, usually a good, vivid, vivid uh, word picture there. Um, so the definition is, 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 you know, straightforward. Uh, but you might also think, you know, I guess I could ask you the question, you know, what comes to your mind when you think of the idea of fulfillment? Um, what might come to mind is, you know, the idea of, like, achieving something. Uh, when we hear phrases in Matthews and other Gospels about Jesus fulfilling the law or fulfilling the prophets, I think a lot of us, myself included, might think of this as Jesus, like, achieving all 613 Old Testament laws, just one by one, picking them off and, and achieving them. But there's a little subtlety about that that I think is it's helpful for us to understand this idea of fulfillment. Um, so stay with me a little bit, but, uh, you know, there's many Old Testament laws that are very situational, that are very specific to specific contexts. Uh, there are laws about farming practices, for example. Uh, there's lots of laws about cleanliness rituals after pregnancy or laws about menstrual cycles or laws about uh, how to treat prisoners of war uh, when you're holding a siege against a city. So there's lots of, there's lots of laws. Are we saying that Jesus achieved each one of those in his lifetime? Okay, this is a safe place. We'll get, we'll get to, trust me here. <laughs> Instead of achieving each law, the idea, the idea of fulfillment, as the New Testament writers use it, is this. To fulfill something is to interpret it correctly and then walk out that correct interpretation perfectly with your life. And so that's, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a shift. Rather than Super Mario Brothers like beating each level... <laughs> The idea of fulfillment is to interpret correctly and walk out that interpretation. And that's how the old, that's how the New Testament writers talk about this idea. So for example, you could fulfill a law about how to treat prisoners of war. Jesus could fulfill that law, even though he never held anyone captive, because he looked at, and this is an overused phrase, he looked at the heart of the law. You know, what does that law actually mean? 
That law means to treat, see people as valuable and treat people with humanity, even your enemies. That's what that law means. And so to walk out that interpretation meant to treat people with humanity, even your enemies. So you can see how, you know, it's not necessarily achieving the law, but he's fulfilling it. And don't hear me wrong, Jesus still lived a perfect sinless life. We can say that he fulfilled the Old Testament law, but it doesn't mean that he achieved it. It, mean, it means that Jesus interpreted God's words as they were intended and displayed that interpretation of the scriptures perfectly with the way that he lived his life. He fulfilled their original intention. And where we often interpret Jesus' teachings as like raising the stakes or upping the ante, that's not what he's doing. When he's, he's not doubling down, uh, he's actually saying this is what the Old Testament uh, laws were actually all about. So the command not to murder was always about not having hate in your heart. You know, the original command to not commit adultery was, all, was always about not having lust in, in your heart. So Jesus is saying, I have come to take the Hebrew scriptures. I've come to walk them out correctly and purely without error in front of you. And Jesus wants, to lead, uh, wants us to read our Bibles correctly and to walk out that interpretation correctly as well. So it's similar to, if you remember, actually almost a year ago, we went through uh, the Ten Commandments section, if you guys remember that one. Um, but there was a word in there that we used to use that was uh, shema, and it was the idea to hear something, to hear the law. And it was, it was an interesting definition because to hear, there was no separating the idea of hearing and doing. It's the same, it's the same word. You know, you, so if you didn't do it, did you even, even hear it? It was that kind of idea. So, um, and this, I think, the idea of fulfillment is, is similar in that way. So to understand something correctly and completely in... Your, with your mind, but also just with how your, how your life uh, walks out that interpretation. So that's our definition of fulfillment. I think that's going to serve us well going through the, the lead-up to, to Jesus' words, uh, but also in the sermon itself. So again, we're starting in Matthew uh, 3.1. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, to, for, to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee for the wrath, from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So really interesting, you know, Matthew gives us kind of the thesis statement of, of John's ministry right off the bat. And it's this message of, it's a fiery message of repentance and the confession of sins. And from, we, from what we know about the Pharisees and Sadducees, was their message, was their interpretation a message of repentance and reliance on God for grace and mercy? No, their, their message was one of rigid obedience that often led to self-righteousness. It was a message of go make yourself right, and then God's favor will fall on you from there. It was a message of taking on the role of God in many ways. And from the passage, we can see two kind of distinct responses to John's message. The first was people adopting a posture of repenting, receiving baptism, and confessing their sins. And the second response was from the religious elite that was quite the opposite of a posture of repentance. They weren't bearing fruit in repentance as he warned them. They were reading God's law as something to be achieved 
rather than some, and, and the bad fruit of that, was, of that posture was quite evident. They were prideful, they were self-righteous, they mistreated people, there was an elevation of the self, those kind of things. So in many, of, in many ways, these two kind of decisions, the author's kind of setting up for us as being, is really bringing us back to the Garden of Eden. The author's making these statements about fruit and trees. He calls Pharisees and Sadducees snakes. John's wearing animal skin. But why would he draw us back to the, to the garden? Because people are once again, as they've always been, at the crossroad of two paths. One of self-righteousness, wanting to be God, put ourselves in the place of God. And the other is, is true righteousness, which is trusting God, believing God, and partnering with God, rather than trying to seize control for yourself. So John's message has power for these people, not because it's something new, but because it's something ancient and forgotten. So Matthew 3, 13 through 17, Jesus shows up on the scene. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. And Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's our word again. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from, uh, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, again, that our word jumped off the page there, fulfill all righteousness. But what is... What does that mean, or why would Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? So Jesus is saying this. To interpret the purpose of the law correctly is to say that all require repentance. He's agreeing with John here. The scribe and the Pharisees didn't think they needed to repent, but Jesus is saying this is the wrong interpretation. You need repentance regardless of how perfect you think you are against the law. And Jesus walks out that interpretation by getting baptized by John, even though Jesus had no sin to repent of. Jesus is demonstrating what it means to be righteous is this. It's to have a life marked by repentance and by reliance on the Father. It's the acknowledgement of your purity before God is not your doing, it's God's doing. And the Father and the Spirit affirm this by speaking this over him. So after Jesus' baptism, or yeah, after Jesus' baptism, Jesus is led into the desert for 40 days of temptation. And we don't have time to interpret this fully. Like I said, we're covering a lot of, of, of pre, pre-context uh, leading up to this. But what's really interesting about Jesus' time in the desert is that even that is about correcting wrong interpretation, isn't it? You know, the, Satan repeatedly misinterprets Scripture, and Jesus turns that around and corrects Satan, which is kind of an interesting thing. But following this, Jesus' official ministry begins. And what does Matthew, what does the author Matthew tell us Jesus's, tells us Jesus' ministry is all about? Matthew 4, 17. It says, from this time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, it's, that might seem familiar from, from, uh, from 3, 2, I think the verse is. It's John's same, it's John's same uh, uh, teaching. So Jesus' message is being carried forward, forward from John's message as well, and it's, it's reaffirming that same posture, that posture of repentance rather than that posture of self-righteousness. And now Jesus' message is the one that has power. Again, not because it's something new, but because it's something ancient and forgotten. This is what Jesus is calling his followers back to. From there, Jesus calls his very first disciples, and not the religiously accomplished or even the moderately qualified. He chooses Simon and Andrew, two fishermen, He calls James and John the sons of Zebedee. 
uh, who, as he talks about in Matthew here, they're still fishing with their father, which is a sign that these guys might not have even been bar mitzvahed yet. They weren't even of adult age. So in that culture, that's 13 or so, something like that, which is really interesting, which sort of makes sense, right? When you think about it, if you're calling people to start an upside-down ministry that corrects centuries of misinterpretation, do you want people who excelled in that system? <laughs> no, he, you want people who flunked out of that system, which is exactly what these guys did. Uh, so this is where Jesus calls his disciples from continuously, as we all know. I mean, even Matthew, the author himself, he's a tax collector. I mean, this is kind of Matthew's message in some ways that the outsider's in and the insider's out. So this is where Jesus calls his disciples from, and this is where we, as Jesus' disciples, also operate, is on these margins of society. So that's where, um, you know, we are leading into the Sermon on the Mount. And some more context here, too, is that, you know, it, I guess what comes to mind when you think of the Sermon on the Mount? You probably think of, of, you know, Jesus sitting there and just huge groups of people surrounding him, listening to his teaching. And uh, I don't think, I don't think we're, our image picture is that, is that far off there. Uh, so Matthew uh, 4, 23 through 25. Uh, and he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And sorry, I don't think I put this uh, up on a slide, so I'll just read it. He went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all, all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, they also, those also oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then where we get into our sermon for today. So actually those little booklets, the first, uh, the first uh, uh, verse from Sermon on the Mount here. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. So what's really interesting here is that, you know, the primary audience of his teaching seems to be Jesus's disciples. I mean, from the context, it says that he actually removes himself from the crowds who are from all over. I mean, the, the point in naming all of those different places is if you look at a map of the area, it's literally far south, far east, far north. It's, it's like the entire area people were following. Um, so Jesus actually, you know, removes himself from the crowds, goes up on the mountain to teach his disciples. And so in 5.1, you would get the picture that it's actually just Jesus and his disciples. Uh, but then actually from our passage uh, that Grace read, at the very, very end of the sermon, it says the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And so it's, we kind of get this, it, the scripture doesn't specifically say this is exactly what, what the crowd looked like, but we know these couple of things. We know that his, the, the teaching was meant for his disciples, but also that large crowds heard it. So it kind of gives you the, the picture of, of, of who is there. So to recap, again, this is the left, the left uh, uh, bookend piece. Uh, to recap, G Jesus is baptized. He passes through the water. He goes through the desert for 40 days and undergoes trials. We're meant to hear, you know, 40 days of wandering through the desert, similar to 40 years. And he comes to a mountain. And in this case, you know, what happens after, after Israel, from the Exodus, when they come through the water, when they wander the desert, they come to next is the mountain of, of Sinai. And they go there for the giving of the law. And so what's Jesus doing here? He's re-giving the law. He's not giving a, a, a new interpretation. It's a re-giving of the law, but taught by somebody who interprets it perfectly and walks it out perfectly for us. So that's the context leading into this. 
How's everyone doing? We okay? <laughs> Great. So um, I was trying to get you know a good like mental picture of what the teaching actually looked like, and I found this uh, cartoon on here that you know probably gives us the right image. Uh, so if you can't read that, it says has the band been on yet? <laughs> so trying to gauge if that's uh, the value of that laugh because I had to pay a license fee to use this image. So <laughs> sounds about right. The twelve dollar laugh, I think it's. I think it works. So anyway, so obviously the good stuff now, I mean, I, those booklets are, are, I think, so helpful through the Galatians series. That was a really awesome thing. Um, there's still probably a bunch of them back there. That's definitely worth uh, having. So unfortunately, the sermon today, we're skipping over most of that and coming back to it. But really what I would love for us to take away uh, from, from all this is, you know, the, the, how Matthew set this up for us in Jesus's own words, I just really would love all of us to kind of marinate in Jesus's words. Like I said, not necessarily uh, just current, like rushing to Paul to explain Jesus to, our, to us, but sitting in Jesus's words themselves. And so, you know, for me, the takeaway from this would be to really just this week or if over the next five weeks as we're teaching through this, um, to take some time and just read through Jesus's words themselves. But from here, we're going to the, to the passage that we actually read uh, for today, the passage for today, is at the tail end. So I'll read it again. Chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears, hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So every book I read and every, every commentary I read on this passage did the same thing with this section, actually. They went into a deep description of what Near East flooding looked like. So, you know, which is great, you know. And I'm sure that's I'm sure that's quite helpful. But if I'm honest, to me it didn't quite help or change the understanding of this passage. We could go into that, but ask me afterward. I read I read all the stuff, but <laughs> ask me afterward if you're interested. Uh, but I think this passage is really face value. He says, These words of mine. This is immediately following his sermon. He says, These words of mine. You can build your life on this bedrock. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying here. And that's the immense value. I mean, again, like I was saying, these words of mine, these are Jesus' words to us. So let us meditate on those. But then, you know, why is this teaching, if we're te te treating this as, as a teaching, why is this teaching better than any other? And I think it has to do with those final words uh, in this passage that Jesus says, or that the... Uh, that the, the um, verse 28 and 29 that he says to us when Jesus, and it's about the idea of authority, Jesus's authority. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it's kind of interesting here is how do you, you know, how do you hear that word authority? You might hear the crowd's astonishment to mean that Jesus's teachings just like exuded or commanded authority or based on the way that he presented them, they just like commanded authority. And I think you're right in that. But I think there's also more to it uh, than that. So this term authority actually carried with it the, a cultural practice 
of one being proclaimed as having authority through like some kind of ordination ceremony. This dates all the way back to Moses. So when, jo uh, when Moses, he was termed the first rabbi, um, and this term authority is used as an ordination process passed down from generation to generation, and it was called, I'm going to butcher this because it's ancient Hebrew, shmiha, probably not throaty enough. Um, but it was, it's on, like, honestly, you can, you can Google it and you can find, there's Wikipedia articles about Shema, because it's, today, it's still being, it's still being used uh, to, to, or, to ordain rabbis. What's interesting is it's actually the original meaning was uh, a transfer of authority passed down from Moses to people who had been trustworthy to teach God's word, and it was given by the elders of Israel. So Numbers 27, uh, verse 18, again, I didn't put a slide in here for this, apologize. But this is from Numbers 27, 18, the first, the first use of this. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man who is in the spirit, and lay your hands on him, and make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest in him some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel might obey. So here's the first, the first passing down of, of ordained authority. And so we know what the process looked like based on the numbers uh, description, but you know, 2,000 years later, we don't exactly know what the process looked like in Jesus' day specifically. And actually, after Jesus' day, the office of rabbi changed pretty significantly, and there's from then on, even until today, there's a very kind of rigid way that uh, rabbis are, are ordained. Um, but the, the consistency was kind of the same, and it was thought that the chief priests, at least in Jesus' day, the chief priests actually controlled the practice of ordained authority. So to be someone who, who was trusted to teach God's word, you first had to prove yourself to be trustworthy of interpreting God's word. Again, this is kind of all about teaching was the idea. It was, it was a good practice, you know, in, in a lot of ways of like, you don't want just anybody out there teaching anything. You want to have, you know, some kind of structure around that. Um, but without authority, you could only teach what others had previously taught. So if there were other rabbis who had given, you know, new uh, uh, teachings on something, you could reteach that, or you could teach this rabbi says this and this rabbi says this, but you couldn't combine them or reformulate them into a new thought. So as one uh, who had authority meant that you could teach in, in new interpretations. And if you didn't have authority, you had to teach like the scribes. Read section A, read section B. Um, and so that kind of gives you some new context for when the crowds are amazed because he's teaching as one who has authority. And so I think to us that says, you know, the question is like, did Jesus have ordained authority. And it sounds like, just from the crowd's reaction, that they didn't think he did. However, Jesus does get his own ordination, doesn't he? We read it earlier, his baptism. So reading that again, Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Son of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice of heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am pleased. So Jesus was proclaimed by God as one who had authority, just like Moses was. And then there was a laying on of hands by John, the baptizer, who's a prophet of God. So that's a pretty good resume. So it's not one that has a human system of authority in it, though. Jesus and John the Baptist both had God-given authority, but it wasn't official ordained authority. So the chief priests and the elders imply the same thing later on in Matthew, Matthew 21, 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority 
are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? We didn't give it to you. (laughs) Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed this amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why don't you believe him? If we say from man, then we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered him, we don't know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's kind of interesting, huh? Like I, you know, if you don't think of Jesus's baptism as an ordination of his authority, God speaking that over him, this passage kind of stands by itself. But when you connect the two, it jumps off the page. So Jesus's authority is God granted, but it's also a little bit rogue. It's also a little bit kind of upside down. But if Jesus only had man-made authority, that'd be bad, right? I mean, if he's, in that case, he's just a teacher and kind of a rebellious one at that. But we know that God granted uh, Jesus this authority through the passage, passages we already read. But also later in Matthew, where Jesus demonstrates what God's authority is, is, uh, is capable of, and it's not just his ability to teach. So Matthew 9, verse 2 through 8. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So a bit of a different response here from the crowd. The first was they were amazed because they're like, how can you teach like this? The second is Jesus literally healing, and later literally uh, raising people from the dead. They're afraid. This is what God's authority does. This isn't man-made you know, uh, authority. This is God's authority. So what does Jesus do with this God-given authority? He interprets scripture correctly for us in the Sermon on the Mount. He walks out that interpretation perfectly for us. He heals ailments and later raises people from the dead. And then he lays down his life and is resurrected and fulfilling, you know, completely fulfills the law. And lastly, he calls us, his followers, to action. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he gives that authority. He passes that authority on. Go, therefore, he says, you know it now, baptizing them, pass it along, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Walk out this interpretation. So Jesus calls his followers to action. I know a lot of us, myself included, you kind of cringe at that word action, right? But this is, this is what it's meant. Is it's the normal fruit of living a life changed by Jesus. We're not talking about, you know, works-based salvation. We're saying that, you know, you could, I think in some, ter- in some circles, Jesus would be even called a legalist for, for Matthew 28. But that's not what he's doing here. He's saying, you know, that correct interpretation is followed by correct action. These two things are inseparable. And why do we follow him? Because Jesus's authority was not limited just to his teaching. Now, his authority literally raised people from the dead, 
We don't just follow a good teacher. We follow a Lord and Savior. And that's why we're in this room, and that's why we're spending the next five weeks studying the Sermon on the Mount. So if I could leave you with one thing here, like I said earlier, it's just to get in Jesus' words. Uh, there's, a, there's a picture here of the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's called the Mount of Beatitudes. It's on the kind of the far north shore uh, of the Sea of Galilee, looking, so this picture is kind of looking south. And uh, you know, it's a really, really, really beautiful place. But as Jesus calls us, his disciples, together to teach this message of repentance and of the kingdom of heaven, he brings us here. So I know it's a little you know, hippie, but like, imagine ourselves here, you know, laying down a blanket on that hillside, dusting off a rock, and we're just, that's where we're going to be for the next five weeks, is just listening to our Lord's teachings. And so that's what I would like us to do, and even as you take uh, these little booklets and spend your own time in the Word, um, yeah, let's just meditate on Jesus's words. Um, you know, God bless the, the, the apostles, God bless Paul, well, let's hear Jesus's words for Jesus's words and not immediately rush to somebody else to explain them to us. So with that, uh, we're going to close it out. And as we usually do, we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to pray. Anyone who uh, wants to pray together, um, staff and really anybody is going to be standing in the back. Please feel free to, to grab somebody. We're going to give and then we're going to receive uh, communion. So with that, would you pray with me one more time?